Okay. <clears throat> All right. Micah chapter 2. Micah 2 verse 1 says, Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and then seize them, and houses and take them away. They rob a man in his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, I am planning against this family a calamity, for which you cannot remove your necks, and you will not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. On that day they will take up against you a taunt, and utter a bitter lamentation, and say, We are completely destroyed. He exchanges the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To the apostate he apportions our fields. Therefore you will have no one stretching a measuring line, for you by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not speak out, so they speak out. For if they do not speak out concerning these things, reproaches will not turn, be turned back. Is it being said, O house of Jacob, is the Spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these His doings? Do not my words do good to the one, who, uh, to the one walking uprightly? Recently my people have arisen as an enemy. You strip the robe off the garment from unsuspecting passerbys, from, them, from those returned from war. The women of my people you evict each one from her pleasant house. From her children you take my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place of rest, because of the uncleanness that brings on destruction, a painful destruction. If a man walking after wind and falsehood had told lies and said, I will speak out to you concerning wine and liquor, he would be spokesman to this people. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. So their king goes on before them, and the Lord at their head. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word that you have granted to us. Uh, Lord, the many blessings uh, that you bestow upon your people. And Lord, we know that... Uh, Chief among these is this great blessing of having your word, which reveals to us your will, so that we might know your ways and come to a true knowledge of who you are and how it is that we ought to live a life pleasing to you. Lord, we do pray that as we see and contemplate, Lord, the judgment that is coming upon the ungodly, uh, Lord, that it might uh, cause us to have a proper fear of you, uh, Lord, so that we do not practice the, the sins of the wicked, Lord, doing those things. Uh, that bring about your displeasure and your wrath. But rather, Lord, we pray that uh, we would be amongst the remnant, amongst those who walk in your ways, uh, Lord, who are led by you, Lord, that you lead forth into victory. So, Father, be with us tonight as we open up your words. We pray that you impart to us your wisdom and your understanding. And, Lord, we uh, ask for you to be with us and to teach us by your Spirit. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so Micah chapter 2, uh, we began this uh, book last week, which is uh, foretelling the destruction that is going to come upon both Israel and Judah uh, at the hands of the Assyrians. For Israel, this destruction is going to be thorough and complete, and that was accomplished in 722 B.C. at the hands of the Assyrians, the northern kingdom of Israel, which is often called Israel in the Bible. Uh, we remember that the kingdom... 
uh, was a united kingdom under the kingships of Saul, but then under David and Solomon. But then after Solomon's death, that kingdom was divided in two. And there was the northern kingdom, mostly called Israel, and then the southern kingdom, mostly called Judah. And the northern kingdom consisted of the ten tribes, and then the southern was Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Well, the northern kingdom, because of their wickedness and the evil, uh, that plagued them over the years, primarily because of Jeroboam and the false worship that he instituted after this separation or this split and division in the kingdom of Solomon. Ultimately, the judgment of God comes upon them and they're utterly wiped out. And that took place by the hands of the Assyrians in 722. And this is what Micah is foretelling. He's prophesying concerning the judgment that God is going to bring upon all of the nation of Israel, both the northern and southern kingdom, through the Assyrians. Now with Judah, there will be a reprieve. They will come there and they will harass them and there will be much destruction and judgment because of their sin. However, it will not be a complete annihilation of the southern kingdom as it was of the northern kingdom. Theirs will come later in 586 through the hands of the Babylonians when they are completely demolished, taken into captivity, but ultimately they would be restored so that God might fulfill the promises He made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to bring the Christ into the world through that family. So this is what Micah is dealing with. He's prophesying concerning the condition of the nation, preaching against their sin, and telling them of the judgment of God that is coming upon them because of the many deeds of evil that are being practiced amongst the children of Israel. So this is not unjustified, but God is completely just in His dealings with them. Though they are His people, and though He has made pledges and promises to them, uh, yet their sin and the guilt of that sin uh, is bringing His wrath and displeasure. And just as He promised blessing to them, He also promised that if they did not walk in His ways, that He would surely bring curses upon them as well. And this is what Micah is reminding them of, so that they might repent, which ultimately they do not do, yet still they hear this message, thus increasing their own guilt. So here he continues uh, with these pronouncements of judgment and of woe against those who are doing this kind of evil and describing in this chapter what is taking place in the land, right? And then at the end of the chapter, there is a bit of hope given to the remnant or to the faithful who are among them. Because in every generation, even in the darkest of times, God still preserved His remnant amongst the people. And while these prophecies of judgment and condemnation are for the wicked, and though the righteous are going to suffer during those times as well, they also need to be encouraged and lifted up because ultimately it will not end in their eternal ruin and destruction because God will preserve His people and He will be faithful to His covenant and to His promises. So let's begin in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. And they covet fields and then seize them and houses and take them away. They rob a man in his house, a man and his inheritance. Here he pronounces a woe. And these woes in the Bible are a pronouncement of judgment, that you are under the judgment of God because of such sin. Right? We know that the wrath of God is coming upon the world and it's becoming on the world because of sin. That those who do such things deserve to die. And here they are practicing many kinds of evil. And he enumerates one of these types of evils that is prevalent here in the land of Israel. He pronounces the woe 
on those who scheme iniquity, right? This judgment of God for this, this type of behavior of what they're committing. They're scheming it and they're working out evils on their bed, right? When men should be resting, right? Resting because of the long day of work, taking their rest so that their bodies might be rejuvenated so that the next day they can get up, thank God for the life that he's given to them, and then set about that day serving the Lord, right? This is the proper way for us to live life. When we come to the end of the day, we should be grateful to God that he gave to us another day of life, that he didn't kill us or that we didn't die along the way, that some lion didn't attack us or a communist or a terrorist or, or an airplane fall on our head. There's all sorts of ways that we could die. Poisonous vipers, they're all over the place. Scorpions, there's many ways that we could come to a horrible ruin each and every day or just through natural causes. And yet we come to the end of each day. And who is the one that gave to us that day life, breath, and all things? It is the Lord who did that. And then as we lay down and we go to bed at night, the expectation is that we will rise the next day. And when we're thinking about the upcoming day, right, and when we are there in our bed at night, we're not busy with the activities of the day because we don't have anything distracting us. We have nothing in front of us, no task at hand. So our minds are free to think and to meditate and to ponder what the next day will hold. And for the godly man, as he's there, he ought to be pondering and thinking about the will of God, what it is that he ought to do to serve the Lord. These are the things that ought to occupy our mind there when we are on our bed, before we fall asleep, when our mind is still active and we're still thinking and we're trying there to go to bed. So rest given to us to rejuvenate the body and the mind ought to be engaged in meditation, right? During those times on the goodness of God. Right, All of the blessings that God has bestowed upon us. We ought to be praising God for His mercies. Right, Offering prayers to God at that time, thanking Him for the many mercies that He's given to us. It would be a good time to examine our own heart and our life to see what corruptions are there, to mourn and to grieve over our own sins. These are spiritual duties, spiritual exercises that a spiritually minded man will do. But not all men have a spiritual mind. For many men, their mind is ruled and dominated by the flesh. And because they're dominated by the flesh, right, they set their mind on the things of the flesh. And here, this is what they are doing. These are fleshly, worldly, carnal, wicked men. So instead of meditating upon the goodness of God, giving their mind over to spiritual exercises and spiritual activities, they're thinking about what? Sin. Evil, all of the evil deeds that they want to commit. They're scheming, plotting, planning about the evil, the sin that they can commit the next day. This is what their mind is drawn to. And here in their heart, they're coveting. They're coveting their neighbor's possessions. What their neighbor owns, what he possesses, they're scheming of ways that they might defraud their neighbor and take what belongs to him and make it their own possession. These are the things that they are doing, giving themselves up to these covetous desires, right? Desires for what does not belong to them. And again, the two great commandments to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And one of the ways that we love our neighbor is that we recognize the right 
to his property, his personal property, that it belongs to him. And we rejoice in God's goodness and his blessing that he gives to a man. And if God chooses to bestow land or a possession or a house or whatever it is that God gives to him, riches and wealth, we should not be jealous of him. We should not covet him in scheme of ways that we might defraud him of those things. But instead, we should be grateful to God for the blessings he bestows upon others. And we ought to recognize that it belongs to him. And instead of defrauding him, do whatever we can to protect and preserve the property of our neighbor. But that's not what they're doing. They're scheming and thinking about how it is that they can take it, right? How they can take it. When the morning comes, he says they do it because it is in the power of their hands. They have power and authority to go and to do the evil deeds that they want to do. They covet it on their beds, right? This is where sin begins. It begins in the heart, in the desires, and then it manifests itself outwardly in our actions, in our words, with our hands. They covet these things, and then they have the power to seize them with their hands. So as soon as the day comes, they rise early in the morning, and they're swift not to do the will of God, but swift to go commit sins against God and sins against their fellow man. Psalm 36. Psalm 36. And it just shows how holy bent they are upon sin, upon sin, that their mind cannot rest even for a moment's uh, time without thinking of sin and their desire to commit it. This is how much they are consumed and overcome, enslaved to sin. Psalm 36 verse 1, transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. The wicked do not despise evil. They love it. They love it. And that is why they plan wickedness on the bed and they set themselves in a path that is not right. Here in verse 2, specifically, they are coveting fields and then they're seizing them, houses, and taking them away. They covet their neighbor's field. They covet their neighbor's house. And then because the power is in their hands, they are able to seize these things and defraud and take them away from their neighbor. So that ultimately they are robbing a man and his house. Right, They're taking what this man needs. Right? Don't we need houses to live in? Shelter? These are the basic necessities of life. We need food. We need shelter. We need these kinds of things so that we can live and have a life where we're not exposed to the elements, to all the dangers of being out in the wild and in the open. And also the house provides comforts for the man right, so that he's not living uh, out in a ditch somewhere, getting rained upon. He has some of these comforts of life that are a gift and blessing to God. If he has a wife and children, then where are they going to sleep at if they don't have a house? This is going to be a very miserable condition to be in. But they're robbing him and his house. And then they're depriving him of his inheritance. 
when they take his possessions from him, not only do they deprive him of the immediate use of those things for his own life and for the raising of his family, but they're also depriving future generations because now he has nothing to leave to his children or to his grandchildren so that his children are going to be in this state of poverty and then the grandchildren, and this will go on generation after generation after generation. And this not because he's lazy, he lacks the ability or the desire to work and not uh, because of some uh, unforeseen circumstance that came upon him. But this is all happening because of malicious sin, right? Because of evil deeds, failure to love the neighbor as themselves and men who probably have plenty of their own possessions and yet they're never satisfied and they always want something more. And typically this is the sins of the rich and the powerful. They are the ones who have power. And many times these things are done under the guise and the protection of the laws of the land. The laws of the land are finagled and manipulated in such a way that the rich and powerful use them to defraud other people of their rightful possessions. And then they'll claim, well, we're not doing anything wrong. We're not breaking the law. We're following the law, right? We're doing what is uh, here designed by the law but they're able to do so because they have the ability because of the power that belongs to them to bribe and to pay off this person and that person to contribute to this campaign and that campaign to get policies put into place that are favorable to them against other people. And the result is they defraud men of what is their rightful possessions, right? So it can be done by force, but typically that is protected under the laws of the land that if I just come and steal your car, then I can appeal to the, the authorities and they're gonna give that back to me. But here, what's happening is being done in the open, right? It's being done in the open and it shows a society and a culture, right? That is so corrupt that this type of activity is happening under the approval of the authorities and likely it's being committed by who? The very authorities, the very authorities that are supposed to protect the innocent are the ones who are manipulating things to their own advantage. And one of the things the authorities, the governing authorities are to preserve and protect in society is the right to private ownership of land, of houses, to protect one man from coming and defrauding another. But what do you do when it is the government itself who is the one defrauding, who is the one stealing, who is the one taking a man's house and his inheritance from him? Where can he go? Who can he appeal to in order to get a reprieve from such an injustice? And yet this is what is happening. Depriving men of house and rightful possession. Now, this is not something that happens um, only in the ancient world. This is something that happens in our own day as well, right? In every generation, this is happening even in our own day. This type of activity is going on, right? And is one of the corruptions we see in our own country, in America, right? With various types of activity that take place in Washington, D.C., right? Amongst those who are governing and making the policies and making the rules, and yet many times those rules favor a very particular group of people. And who are the ones that they favor? The rich and the wealthy, the ones who contribute 
to campaigns who give large sums of money and then policies are put into place that favor large corporations and very wealthy people and they build their riches on the back of the middle class and the poor who do not have the ability to defend themselves and to take advantage of such things. Crony capitalism would be an example of this where it's not true capitalism, right? Where successful companies are rewarded because they're well-managed and well-run. If that's the case, then that's good and fine. But whenever laws are put in place that favor certain companies, that put other companies out of business, and they cannot compete with these companies, right? Like the mom and pop store cannot compete with Walmart because Walmart has outsourced all of their production where? To China. And they're building it with slave labor there. So they're able to come in and sell a t-shirt for five bucks when you can't do that right at the mom and pop store when you're making it here because it's impossible for you to do so. But how are they able to do so? Because of these advantages and benefits and incentives that are given to them against the other people. And then they come in and what happens to all the mom and pop stores? They all go bankrupt because they cannot stay into business. And then who ends up getting all the business and all the money in that area? The one big store. Well, when that happens, you have some of these businesses that have been in business for many, many years. And then what happens to them? They go bankrupt. They cannot stay open anymore. Even in our own county, right here, Lincoln County. Did you know that Lincoln County, Oklahoma, at one time, per capita, was the second largest dairy producer in the United States of America, right here in Lincoln County. And if you drive around, you'll see many farms, old farms with grain bins, with silos where they used to house their grain so that they could feed their cattle throughout the, the years. And yet now, what happened to all those dairies? These private, independent-owned dairies where fathers taught their sons and then they passed it down from generation to generation to generation and they were able to make a good income and provide for their family. It was hard work, but they were rewarded for their labor. And what happened to all of them? They all went out of business. Is this because Americans quit drinking milk? Did they all decide to drink soy milk instead? No, of course not. It all happened because certain laws were put in place that favored these large, huge dairy corporations. And then they undercut all their prices so that these local dairies couldn't make any money. So that they were getting up in the morning. I know this because we used to have some dairy farmers that came to our church. <clears throat> and Michael can tell you because he's lived here. They had to get up in the morning every day of the week, milk their cows, and then they'd have to go to the factory and work all day long. And then they had to come home and do the same thing. And they're barely making any money at all. And eventually, what's the point in doing it? And then they all shut down and who gets all the business, right? And this is not because of supply and demand, but it's because of policies put in place that deprive people of the ability to do these types of, these are just examples, again, me showing that what is happening here is happening in our own day as well. This is what we're talking about. It is this kind of activity, these kinds of policies where there are defrauding of individuals and private, individuals and private businesses of the ability to provide for themselves, to leave an inheritance, to take it all away from them so that they can become more and more and more wealthy. Right, these massive corporations, and many times the politicians will favor them because they contribute large sums of money to their campaigns. 
And what can the private people do? What can the local dairy farmer do? Right? He can't give millions of dollars to the campaign. So what does he do? He has to shut down and he has to go get a job somewhere else. And what they've done for all these years, they're not able to do and make a living anymore. So this is what is going on also. What about excessive taxation? Right? Aren't they depriving people of inheritance, of their houses, of their property, of these kinds of things, when you're paying 50 cents on a dollar in taxes? Well, wouldn't it be better to pay, even in Joseph's day, when things were so horrible in Egypt, how much did they pay to Pharaoh? 20%, and they considered themselves slaves. Well, wouldn't it be better if we were paying 20% and then that other 30%, you could keep the 30% of the 50, but then you'd keep your other 50, so you'd be keeping 80% of what you made. Well, wouldn't a person be able to have a nicer house? He, couldn't he buy more property? Wouldn't he have a better inheritance to leave to his children? More money to contribute to charities, to his church, whatever it is that he wanted to do? He would have the ability to do that, but he doesn't have the ability to do that. Why? Because they're sucking him dry from the taxes, right? And does he have the ability to opt out of these things? No, way. no, no way, Jose. They will come and get every last penny. So this is what's going on. It's going on here in Micah 2. It's going on in our own day as well. And what motivates all of this is no fear of God. They have no fear of God, no fear the day of judgment of any retribution. We can do whatever we want. And so long as we can get away with it, then there is not going to be any penalty to pay. And then also no regard for their fellow man, self love, selfish. They love themselves and they love pleasure and they don't love their fellow man. So they're just going to do whatever is best for themselves, for their own pocket, for their own wealth, for their, for their children and grandchildren, but not for your grandchildren and your children. This is what's going on in Israel. It's going on in our own day as well. Verse 3, Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, I am planning against this family a calamity, for which you cannot remove your necks, and you will not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. Because of these sins, this being an example, not that this was the only sin being committed during that time, but it was an egregious sin. There are many other sins that they're committing as well. But because of these kinds of sin, God is planning against this family, this family of Jacob, the children of Israel, a calamity from which they cannot remove their necks. There is a judgment coming upon them that is inescapable. They will not be able to remove their necks from this judgment that is going to fall on them. God has determined. He has made up his mind. He has made his pronouncement and he will not turn back. He will not alter what it is that he has said. This calamity will come and it will not be removed from their neck. And you will not walk haughtily for it will be an evil time. They're walking in a haughty way now because they have no fear of God and they believe that they can do whatever they want with impunity. God doesn't see and God's not going to repay. But when the judgment of God comes upon them, what does it inevitably do to men? It knocks them off of their pedestal from their haughty, arrogant stance. Then they're not going to be haughty anymore because all of this power that they have, that they use to exploit other men, that's going to be turned against them. And now other men who have more power than they do are going to do to them exactly what they did to everyone else. 
their inheritance, their houses are going to be taken away from them and they're going to go to someone else, to a complete, utter stranger. Their children and grandchildren will not receive the family farm, right? The family house, the family inheritance. Instead, it's going to go to complete strangers. It's going to be, he says, an evil time. These are evil days and it will be an evil time when much evil comes upon them. Psalm 94. And we have to be aware of these things because when we see this happening all around us, the temptation is for us to say, well, everyone else is doing it, so you just got to join in, right? Just join in and, and take part, and it's just the way it is. But we can't do that. We have to live with integrity and live in an upright way and know that ultimately all of these kinds of sins God is going to deal with on the day of judgment. Psalm 94, O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour forth words, they speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. They have said, The Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. Pay heed, you senseless among the people. And when will you understand, stupid ones? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge. The Lord knows the thoughts of man. They are a mere breath. So there they are very haughty and arrogant toward others and toward the Lord. Saying that God doesn't see. He's not going to pay heed. God's not going to do anything about it. But this is very arrogant and he says stupid to believe that. God is the one who created the ear. Does He not hear the things that you say in dark corners? He's the one that created our eyes that give us the ability to see. So why would we think that our Creator doesn't have the ability to see everything that we do? It's all laid open and bare before the eyes of the one to whom we have to give an account. And we will give an account to the Lord. He will rebuke. He will rebuke even His own people if they do not turn away from their evil deeds. Verse 4, On that day they will take up a taunt, they will take up against you a taunt, and utter a bitter lamentation and say, We are completely destroyed. He exchanges the portion of my people. How he removes it from me. To the apostate he apportions our fields. On that day they're going to take up a taunt against Israel. They're going to become a byword or a parable or a riddle that people are going to use them in such a way that it will become sayings in the other nations because of how great the devastation and destruction that God brought upon them. They will be a taunt and a byword amongst the other nations. When they're referring to horrible situations, to calamities, to destruction, to these kinds of things, they're going to reference Israel, right, as the example of these kinds of things. This is how horrible it's going to be and how broad and widespread it will be known. They're going to be completely destroyed. And he's going to exchange the portion of the people. And to the apostate, he's going to give their fields. When they came into the land, God gave to them this possession as their own. They inherited fields that they did not clear, vineyards that they did not plant, wells that they did not dig, houses that they did not build. God gave these things by His grace and mercy to the children of Israel. 
But now what's he going to do? Just as he did with the Canaanites, he took it away from them and he gave it to Israel. So now he's going to take it away from Israel and he's going to give it to apostates, idolaters, the Assyrians. They're going to come and take away what belongs to Israel. And Assyria, their foreign policy, whenever they conquered nations, was to displace those people, to take them and remove them from their native land and put them in another portion of their empire, and then to take other conquered peoples from another portion of the empire, and then move them over to that area and have them go and settle and dwell there, right? So that the people had no rooting, uh, no culture, no stability in that way, and they're more easily controlled and manipulated. Actually, this is happening today as well. This is why they want floods of immigrants coming in, so that they have no culture, no sense of any of this. They're more easily controlled and manipulated in that way. Nothing changes, right? It's all the same over and over and over again. Well, this is what he will do to them. He's going to take their land, their fields, their houses, their vineyards, their wells, their orchards, and he's going to give it to apostates, to unbelievers, to idolaters, because what's the difference? What's the difference between you having it and them having it, right? At least they're honest about who they are. They make no pretense about being the people of God and serving the Lord, right? At least they're open and honest about their idolatry, whereas the Israelites, they make a pretense about serving the Lord. So God will take it away from them. Deuteronomy 28 Deuteronomy 28, verse 58. Deuteronomy 28, 58 says, If you are not careful to observe all the words of this law, which are written in this book, to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants, even severe and lasting plagues and miserable and chronic sickness. He will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they will cling to you. Also, every sickness and every plague which, not written in the book of the law, the Lord will bring on you until you are destroyed. Then you should be left few in number, whereas you were as numerous as the stars of the heaven, because you did not obey the Lord your God. It shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you, and you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you and your fathers have not known. Among those nations you shall find no rest, and there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes, and despair of soul. So your life shall hang in doubt before you, and you will be in dread night and day, and shall have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, would that it were evening, and at the evening you shall say, Would that it were morning, because of the dread of your heart which you dread, and for the sight of your eyes which you will see. The Lord will bring you back to Egypt in ships, by the way about which I spoke to you. You will never see it again, and there you will offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. Well, God makes true on His word, and this is exactly what happened to the Israelites. They were taken away. Verse 5, he says, Therefore you will have no one stretching a measuring line for you by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Here the measuring line is what they use to measure their boundaries, their properties, 
uh, that were their possession. But there's going to be no need for someone to stretch the measuring line for them because they're not going to have any property, right? All of it's going to be taken away and they will have no inheritance in the assembly of the Lord. They will be completely removed from the land and taken away. Verse 6. Do not speak out, so they speak out. But if they do not speak out concerning these things, reproaches will not turn back. Here, the people say, do not speak like this. Right? They don't want Micah the prophet speaking out the word of God. Do not speak out is what they speak out. They don't want to hear the word of God. They don't want to hear about the judgment of God that's coming because of their sin. But if they do not speak out concerning these things, reproaches will not be turned back. What is the only way that a man can be spared of the judgment of God? We must repent of our sin and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And doesn't that necessitate preaching against sin? Proclaiming to men the coming judgment of God? So they don't want the judgment of God to come upon them, but they also don't want the only cure for overcoming the judgment of God, which is repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So they are speaking out of both sides of their mouth. Don't speak like this. Don't speak to us of judgment. But if I don't speak of these things, how will the reproaches be turned back? Isaiah chapter 30, verse 10. Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 10. Here it says, Who say to the seers, You must not see visions. And to the prophets, You must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words, prophesy illusions. Get out of the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. This is what a rebellious people do. They say to the prophets, to the seers, to the preachers of righteousness, don't say these things to us. We don't want to hear words of judgment. We don't want to hear you preach against our sin. Instead, we want words of comfort. We want words of peace. We want you to speak to us pleasant words, right? What is good and right in our eyes and our ears. We would rather hear lies and illusions than hear the truth, but tell us what we want to hear so our conscience isn't tormented by the knowledge of our sin. But what good is that to do? How does that benefit men at all if we're telling them lies if the reality remains the same? Right? What good does it do to tell the man who has brain, or, uh, a brain cancer he doesn't have brain cancer? If indeed he actually has brain cancer, right? That's not a benefit to him. You're just lying to him, but it doesn't, it doesn't change the truth and the reality of what is coming upon them. And yet this is how people are. They don't want to hear the truth. They would rather have a false prophet telling them the things that they want to hear than a true prophet telling them what they need to hear so that they might avoid the judgment of God that is coming upon them. That is what they're doing here. Verse 7. Is it being said, O house of Jacob, is the Spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these His doings? Do not my words uh, do good to the one walking uprightly? Here, the, they are saying, this is what the house of Jacob is saying, the Spirit of the Lord is impatient. 
right? God is not being patient with us. He's not being long-suffering with us, right? He's very hasty in his pronouncements of judgment, right? If these are true prophets and they understand that the Spirit of the Lord is in the prophet to give him the words of prophecy, then why is the Spirit of the Lord so impatient? As if the Spirit of the Lord in the prophet is being hasty with the people so that the people want to do good and they want to do right, but the prophet won't give us a chance. But that's not the case at all, right? The reality is that God is slow to anger, that God is very patient with the wicked, that he suffers long with them, right? That is what is true in the reality of the way that God deals with men. But they don't want to turn away from their sin. However, he assures them that the Spirit does bring words of comfort. But to whom does the Spirit give such words? To the one walking uprightly. The Spirit, His words are good to the one walking uprightly. Like in Psalm 1, where it pronounces the blessing of the Lord upon the man who does not stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. On this law he meditates day and night. He's like the tree planted by streams of water, yields its fruit in its season. Whatever he does prospers is what is true of this man. That is a good word. But who is that true of? Is it true of the one practicing sin, walking in iniquity, committing evil deeds, coveting fields, seizing them from his neighbor, doing all sorts of wicked deeds all the time? No, that's not for him, but it is for the one who is walking uprightly. So the Lord is not impatient and God is not unjust in his pronouncements of judgment against the wicked. And the Lord is good and he does bring comfort and peace and assurance, but only to his people, only to those such as have true faith in Christ. And that faith is manifested in walking uprightly, who are trying to live a godly life, but not to unrepentant sinners who refuse to turn away from their sin. They have no good word from the Lord, but only the judgment of God. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked, but only the expectation of a wrath and a fire that will consume the adversaries. Verse 8 and 9. Recently, my people have arisen as an enemy. You stripped the robe off the garment by, from unsuspecting passerbys, from those returned from war. The women of my people you evict, each one, from her pleasant house, from her children, you take my splendor forever. Here, this is how depraved they were. That even as of recently, the people of God had risen up against an enemy, against their own brothers. Right? We're not talking about against the Philistines, against the Assyrians, against the Edomites. But they have risen up as an enemy against their own brothers. Israelites doing this to the men of Judah, to the men of Judah, to their own brothers when they are returning from war. Those who are not there to harass them, they're not coming there to conquer them. They're just passing by, minding their own business, trying to return back to their own land. And yet they fall upon them and strip them of the, their robe. They come to these unsuspecting passers-by, those returning from war, and they take what belongs to them. They enslave them. The women of the people, they evict. They throw them out of their houses so that they don't have a pleasant home to live in. And then they're taking their children from them and enslaving their children and committing all sorts of atrocities against them. 
And this is what the Israelites are doing even to the people of Judah, even to their closest of kin, their kinsmen. And typically in a nation, there should be affinity, there should be warmth, there should be some kind of even a natural love of one kinsman toward the other. And yet here, they're deprived even of that. So even the most basic elements of love, the love that is even found amongst many godless people, even idolaters, are exceeding them in love for one another. And yet, they have none of this toward their brothers. No natural love, care, and affection, and certainly no spiritual or true evangelical love and affection. Second Chronicles 28, an example of this. Here, it's, it's so egregious that they are able to speak some sense and quell the madness of the people and what they're doing, but they are doing it, right? They're doing it, and it's in their heart and in their mind to commit such atrocities against them. Second Chronicles 28, verse 5. Wherefore, the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Aram, and they defeated him and carried away from him a great number of captives and brought them to Damascus. And he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, who inflicted him with heavy casualties. For Pekah, the son of Ramallah, slew in Judah 120,000 in one day, all valiant men, because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. And Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, slew Masiah, the king's son, and Azrikim, the ruler of the house of Elkanah, the second to the king. The sons of Israel carried away captive of their brethren, 200,000 women, sons and daughters, and they took also a great deal of spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. But a prophet of the Lord was there, whose name was Oded. And he went out to meet the army which came to Samaria and said to them, Behold, because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he has delivered them into your hand, and you have slain them in a rage which has even reached heaven." Now you are proposing to subjugate for yourselves the people of Judah and Jerusalem for male and female slaves? Surely do you not have transgressions of your own against the Lord your God? Now therefore listen to me and return the captives whom you captured from your brothers, for the burning anger of the Lord is against you. Then, son, then some of the heads of the sons of Ephraim, Azariah the son of Joath, uh, Jehonah, Barakiah, the son of Meshilamuth, and Jezekiah, the son of Shalom, and Amasa, the son of Haldi, arose against those who were coming from the battle and said to them, You must not bring the captives in here, for you are proposing to bring upon us guilt against the Lord, adding to our sin and our guilt, for our guilt is great, so that his burning anger is against Israel. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the officers in all the assembly. Then the men who were designated by name arose, took the captives, and they clothed all their naked ones from the spoil. And they gave them clothes and sandals, fed them, and gave them drink, anointed them with oil, led all their feeble ones on donkeys, and brought them to Jericho, the city of palm trees, to their brothers. Then they returned to Samaria. So here is an example of just how depraved the people of Israel had become. Even when God gave Judah into their hands, their excesses in the treatment of them was so extreme that he, the prophet says it's even reached the heavens, even reaching the heavens itself, that they had no restraint, 
no moderation in the way that they dealt with them, but there were just complete barbarity in doing whatever they please, even taking 200,000 women and children from them to be their slaves from their own brothers. They were doing this so that the prophet and these other men had to restrain them, talk some sense into them, and they reluctantly returned them there to their own people. This is what they are doing, and they have become an enemy, an enemy to God and an enemy to his people. Verse 10, arise and go, for this is no place of rest because of the uncleanness that brings on destruction, a painful destruction. Here, he says, arise and go from this place. This is not a place of rest. The land of Israel is to be a place of rest, right? Isn't that what Joshua gave to the people when they entered into the land? Joshua gave them a type of rest, and that rest that Joshua gave to them in the land of Israel was to be a rest from their sin, from their iniquity, from their wickedness, where they served the Lord, where they worshiped the Lord. This is the rest that we ought to enter into. But they're not entering into this rest. This is not a place of rest. It's a place of sin, of depravity, of much evil and wickedness. So because it is not a place of rest, then you're not going to have any rest in this place. And the rest that God gave to them in Joshua, when they took possession of the land, that's going to be taken away from them and they're going to be driven from it. And then they will be wanderers and they will have no rest, no peace, no tranquility. They will not have those comforts and luxuries that came to their life that they experienced in Israel because of the rest given to them by Joshua. They don't have a right to it because of their sin, right? Because of their sin, they have no right to this rest. Therefore, they're going to be driven away. No place of rest. It is nothing but uncleanness that brings painful destruction. Verse 11. If a man walking after wind and falsehood had told lies and said, I will speak out to you concerning wine and liquor, he would be spokesman to this people. Here, if a man walking after wind, right, after wind, a person who is prone to lie is full of wind or hot air, a windy person, right, they say whatever is convenient, whatever suits the situation, or whatever is going to be pleasing to the people. And this is what, uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, it talks about us not being infants tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, right? Wind is synonymous with lies, with things that are not truthful, and this is the way it is with false prophets. False prophets are liars who will change their doctrine to accommodate the times. Now, whatever way the wind of the time is blowing, that's the doctrine. That's what's going to formulate the doctrine, the teachings of the false teachers, right? They'll give people whatever they want. The public opinion, the wind of public opinion drives their doctrine or their teaching so that they accommodate the people and they're always in the favor of the masses because this is what they have the ability to do. They're like a chameleon that is able to change to whatever is suitable to the environment. And so they always have the favor and the applaud of the people. They're always popular because people love them. They tell them exactly what they want to hear. And this is what he says to them. If you had a false teacher... Right, a man walking after wind and falsehood, who spoke nothing but lies. This 
is the spokesman for this people. Right? This is the kind of teacher that you want who said, I will speak to you concerning wine and liquor. Right? I'm going to prophesy and preach to you that you're all going to have lots of wine and lots of liquor, right? hard drink, strong drink, and we can all get drunk. They're like, man, this guy's a great teacher. We love him. He said such, such a uplifting messages, right? Every time I come, I leave here feeling better about myself because I can go home and drink all I want, all the wine and liquor that I want. Man, this guy, he's great. He's wonderful. See, church growth movements, they started long ago, all the way back in Micah's day. There were false teachers telling them, preaching to them of wine and strong drink, and the people loved it. They loved to have it so. But what kind of a people wants a prophet, a teacher, who tells them it's okay to go get drunk, who tells them it's okay to commit immorality, to do whatever they want, whatever they please. Well, not a godly people, not a righteous people, not a holy people, but those who are unholy and unrighteous and ungodly, who are controlled and ruled by their own lust and their passions. This is what is dominating them, and this is why the kind of teacher that is suitable to this people is one who will preach to them lies and one who will tell them about wine and strong drink and tell them to drink to your full, eat, drink, and be merry. But God loves you just the way you are and it's all going to be all right. We have nothing to worry about. We are the people of God, right? We have the temple of the Lord here. God's not going to destroy us. He's made these promises to us. Right? Didn't he give these great promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He swore these things to us. We have nothing to fear. It's all going to be all right. And then the people go away feeling confident and secure, living in their sin, and it just emboldens them to commit more sin and not to turn away from their sin and be reconciled to God. Verse 12. Now here, words of comfort. This is how I take 12 to 13. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. So their king goes on before them, and the Lord at their head. Here, in the midst of judgment, in the midst of his pronouncements of these things, God does break in with a message of hope and comfort to the faithful, right? To the remnant, right? That's who he's talking to here. He's going to gather the remnant of Israel. There is Israel, and then there is the remnant that existed within Israel. And this remnant are those who are faithful to the Lord, those who have not bowed the knee to Baal, as it was in Elijah's day when the Lord kept for himself 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. There was a remnant that was chosen by grace. Romans chapter 11, Romans 11, verses 1 to 6 This is what it says. I say then, has God rejected his people? He says, may it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars and I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there also has come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. 
Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So at the present time, there is a remnant according to the grace of God. And even in Micah's day, when things were of such a deplorable situation in Israel and Judah, there still was a remnant chosen by God that God had preserved for Himself, and He is assuring them that He will gather them as a shepherd gathers his flock, and He will bring them into His fold, and like a flock in the midst of its pasture, and they will be noisy with men. Noisy with men, right? Meaning that there will be many men there who are singing the praises of God, right? Who are giving praise to the Lord of heaven and earth. So in the midst of this judgment, there is this comfort for the remnant that is the true Israel of God. So here there is a dual message, right? To the fake Jews, right? To the presumptuous Jews, those who were sinful, who were practicing sin, but were not true Israelites, right? Those who are merely Jews outwardly, but not Jews inwardly. The message to them is judgment and destruction. But to the true Jew, who is a spiritual Jew, right? One who has a changed heart, right? Who is circumcised, not merely in the flesh, but who's circumcised in the heart. The message is one of comfort and of hope that God will gather them and God will fulfill his promises to them. Right? And this is according to Romans chapter 2, 24 to 26, where it says that no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 34, 11 to 16 Ezekiel 34, verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the streams and in the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture, and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in the rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment." So there God promises in the same way in Ezekiel, using this imagery of the shepherd with the sheep, that God will bring his sheep and he will give to them this rich pasture and will give them rest. Even though he pronounced that there would be no rest in this land, there will be rest for the true believer, for the true Israelite, one who is of faith, just like our father Abraham. Then verse 13. How will this be accomplished? Well, the breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. So their king goes on before them, and the Lord at their head. Here, the breaker will go up before them. That there is one who will go up before the sheep and who will lead them out into their pasture. And this one is, at the beginning of verse 13, called the breaker. And it is on the basis of the breaker going up before them 
that they, the sheep, also break out, and they pass through the gate, and they go out by it. Then at the end of the verse, the breaker is called their king, who goes on before them. And then the next phrase is the Lord at their head. And who is the breaker? Who is their king? Who is the Lord who is at the head of the flock of God, leading them in triumph, leading them into these green pastures, into the very salvation of the Lord? It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? It is Christ Himself who is the one who leads the sheep, who rescues them and leads them victoriously into their salvation, who is king over his people. He is shepherd over them. He is the breaker who goes before them. And he is the Lord, their God, who is at their head and leads them in this triumph. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20. It is Christ who safely leads all of the flock of God into the heavenly kingdom. Hebrews 6.20 says, Where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. There, Jesus is called a forerunner for us. A forerunner because He runs before us. He runs ahead of us, and He is the one who paves the way or makes the way by which we will enter into the kingdom of God. And that is the same as Micah 2.13, the breaker who goes up before them and who leads them into this triumph. We'll close with a uh, quote here that I have from, this was from uh, Gill's commentary on this passage. And I thought he said it well, uh, describing the role of Christ as the one who leads the people of God into, victoria, into victory. Here, Gill says, It is best to interpret the breaker of Christ himself. And so I find it explained by the Jews also, to whom this and all the rest of the characters in the text agree, and who may be so called with respect to his incarnation, being the firstborn that opened the womb and broke forth into the world in a very extraordinary manner, his birth being of a virgin, who was so both before and after the birth. With respect to his death, when he broke through and vanquished all enemies, sin, Satan, the world, and death, broke through all the troops of hell and spoiled principalities and powers, and through all difficulties that lay in the way of the salvation of his people, he broke down the middle wall of partition, the ceremonial law, which was between Jew and Gentile, and broke off the yoke of sin, Satan, and the law, under which they were, and set them at liberty. And at his resurrection, he broke asunder the cords of death. And at his ascension, he broke his way through the regions of the air and legions of devils there, leading captivity captive and entered into heaven and was opening the way for his people into it. By the ministry of the word, he broke his way into the Gentile world, conquering and to conquer, which was mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds and reducing multitudes to his obedience. At the conversion of every sinner, he breaks open the everlasting doors of their hearts and enters in. He breaks their rocky hearts in pieces, and then binds up what he has broken, and in the latter day he will break in pieces all of his enemies as potter's vessels. Yes, he will break in pieces and consume all the kingdoms of the earth, which will become like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. And now he has ascended, or gone up to heaven to his father there. And before them his sheep, his people, said to be assembled, gathered, and put together. 
He has ascended as the forerunner of them to receive gifts for them and bestow them on them and to prepare heaven for them and to make intercession on their behalf. And as sure as he has gone up, so sure shall they also follow. So it is Christ who is our salvation, who is the one who has opened up the way in which we might ascend to God and be with God and dwell with him in heaven for all eternity. And everything that is needed for our salvation is accomplished by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.